The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Eternal Father, at the baptism of Jesus, you revealed him to be your son, and your Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. Grant that we, who are born again by water and the Spirit, may be faithful as your adopted children. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. It's a really good one. Behold my servant, who I am uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things now I declare. Therefore, they spring forth. I tell, oh, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is from the book of Acts. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord. And then John the Baptist preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop and down and untie. I have baptized you with water, 
but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the gift of worshiping together and hearing from your word. And I ask that you um, uh, open our eyes and our eyes, our hearts, our minds to, to see and receive um, Jesus today. Amen. You can be seated. I'll be, I don't think I've preached with the tank in front of me before. And it feels a little intimidating. Like, I don't know, I just, I've normally have never tripped, but I feel like I am going to trip into the tank. So if things go really bad, I can just end it with that, I guess, and move on. Anyway, so five years ago, uh, my wife uh, was named uh, like the distinguished alumni of the year at her chiropractic school. Uh, that was uh, really exciting and, I mean, deserved and interesting to figure out and plan out around with her and stuff. And it meant things like she was going to get a nice plaque. Uh, but also she would then, you know, get that plaque and be recognized at like the big, you know, yearly homecoming banquet gala thing. She would have to get up after the meal and give a speech. And she did. And it was great. She did wonderful and all those things. Um, but before those parts of it, uh, the first part of the night was uh, the cocktail small talk hour. And we had to get there for that. Liz had to be there early enough to get things figured out. Uh, as we were discussing the night and how it was going, it was a little intimidating for Liz. It was just weird to me. I've never done these things before. Uh, we were figuring it out. And really, that small talk hour was the thing that we were both kind of hung up on. Like, we weren't excited about that. Liz, personally, um, was just, she had no idea how many people she would actually know there. Um, and also, people would know she was getting the award. They had her, like, have, like, a weird name tag or something. So that meant all these people she didn't know would want to come up and say things to her. Um, and her primary concern, her her primary issue was she was still experiencing some morning sickness from her pregnancy, and those kind of conversations are a lot harder when you're already nauseous. Um, <laughs> and, and I was being encouraging and exciting. She's like, well, how do you feel about it? And I was like, I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of these types of small talk. I find them really awkward. And she's like, well, why? And I said, because at some point, they're going to stop talking to you, and they're going to turn to me, and you know they're going to start with, and what do you do? And I'm not ashamed at all with what I do, but once you say, well, I'm a pastor, a lot of people get kind of a look in their eye, and they, they kind of like, oh, and, and they're, they're done. Uh, it's like they're worried that I'm going to like start yelling at them. I'm a pastor. You need to repent from your sins. There's something wrong. And so they freak out. And she's like, really? It's like, yeah, it is. So we, she was really kind and like, how do we think about like, maybe there's more ways we can introduce you as a pastor. What if we give them like a longer sentence so they can find something to hold on to? So, you know, things like I work at a church in Hopkins as a pastor, I would get to teach youth and adults and whatever, you know, maybe there's enough that they can ask a question on and not just get kind of worried about and turn away. Um, we, we were like, we still have to say pastor at some point. It just feels like you're being dishonest. At some point, you're stacking things up and not making sense of it. Um, Liz was still just a little skeptical. She's like, you're, you're blowing this out of proportion. Um, then we got there for the small talk time. And of course, people would talk with her for quite a while and say all these nice things and figure these things out. And then she would keep trying to introduce me. And she'd eventually get to this is my husband. And of course, they would turn to me. And it was always, and what do you do? And I would try the phrases. I would try the things. And most of them would go, oh, and then they would, maybe, they, maybe you'd get a that's nice, 
Uh, and then they'd turn back to Liz, or they would just leave, <laughs> kind of thing. So Liz, it was sweet. She was starting to get upset about it, so she would try to do the whole introduction. This is my husband. He's a pastor at our church, which we love. It's such a great... She would try to do that, and they would just be, oh, great, and then they would move on as well. Um, so she found it frustrating. I just kind of found it amusing at that point, uh, as far as it went. Uh, honestly, the people that knew Liz anyway, they weren't so worried about me. They figured Liz is normal. He's probably not that bad. So they would talk a bit more and things, um, but it was, it was kind of funny. I will give just a quick aside. This isn't from the, for the sermon. If you're at a social function like that and you meet a pastor, give a couple follow-up questions. They would really love that. It would help them feel better about themselves in that moment. <laughs> I wanted to share that story today because it has me thinking about introductions um, and about the importance of sometimes awkwardness around introducing ourselves or making those introductions. And that's because we actually have two really important introductions in our readings today. Uh, I think they go a lot better than mine usually do. Uh, and I do know at least that as God made these introductions, he wasn't fretting over what the right things to say were. Um, so today, uh, Christian mentioned that the, the welcome is the first Sunday of the season of Epiphany. Uh, in, Christmas, uh, in, in December, we had the season of Advent. So that's about waiting for, for Jesus and for, to come. Christmas is about celebrating that he came. And Epiphany then is about um, celebrating and acknowledging uh, the revelation of Jesus, that he was made known as the Savior for the world. Uh, and on the first Sunday of Epiphany, we always remember the baptism of Jesus because this is a key moment when Jesus was revealed to the world. This is his big introduction to all the people at the, as, as an adult and at the start of his active ministry. So we begin with that baptism of Jesus by John. Uh, and Mark, it's a very brief story. And we kind of get the idea that as Jesus is being baptized, it really didn't catch anyone's attention right away. There's just a lot of crowds there. People aren't surprised that someone else is being baptized. But of course, that didn't last long, because as Jesus steps out of, the water, out of the water, we're told that he saw the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove upon him, and even more than God spoke from heaven about him. In our Mark reading, it's very clear that Jesus hears this voice of God here, but if you consider also the Gospel of Matthew and John, uh, it seems very much that God spoke not just to Jesus in this moment, but he spoke so that the whole crowds could hear as well, as he's powerfully declaring about Jesus that you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is a very quick introduction, um, but it comes really packed with meaning. First is just that Jesus is God's beloved son. Now that meant something very different to Jesus than it did to the crowds at this point, who don't really know all that is meant by God's son. They might be thinking about how Israel is sometimes referred to as God's son. Um, they could think about how when they thought about the coming Messiah, um, they would often think of him as the son of God. For them, that was like a title in some way. Um, so when they heard this about Jesus, they just knew apparently he's someone special and we should be watching him as God is doing something. But they didn't yet understand all that we know now that Jesus as God's son isn't simply a title or a job description. It's a description of who he really, truly is. The second person of the Trinity. He's as fully God as the one who's speaking over him at this moment. I think, though, um, it's probably the second part of the statement that really landed for people, really caught their imagination. With you, I am well pleased. Maybe part of that is just because I think that's what we all want to hear from God in some way. But it's especially important in this moment because it's a really strong reference to or allusion to Isaiah 42. There's a lot of important linguistic connections at the very start of those. So as the people heard this said about Jesus, this passage might pop up in their heads and they could start thinking, well, what does this have to do with this man before us? So turn to Isaiah 42 here. And we see right away this passage is also 
an important introduction, because here God is for the first time in the prophet Isaiah uh, introducing this important sort of mysterious person of the servant. And there are four servant songs between chapters 42 and 53. The most famous one, many of you know, comes in Isaiah 52, 53, and we learn that the servant there was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our, iniqu our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. This is the first of those servant songs, though. This is the first introduction of the one that God calls my servant. And after the baptism, this is where God is pointing the people as he introduces them to his son. God is making the connection that the one before them now is this promised servant. They don't yet know Jesus, but with this passage, they can begin to understand something of who he really is and what he will be doing among them. And the first thing we notice in this passage, really right in the beginning, then carrying throughout the passage about who Jesus is, who the servant is, is just how intimately related to God the servant is. We see this in terms of their relationship and also the work, the work that the servant will do. In terms of intimate relationship, again, we see the servant is called by God, my servant. It's already a close connection. We think of possession with that, but we even just think about how we have my friend or my wife. This is someone who's close and uniquely related. Also, the servant, we're told, is upheld and supported by God, but even more, God chose him and his soul delights in him. That's not a little thing. You know, I don't go around saying, my soul delights in hamburgers. Um, I love hamburgers, but that's still too much, right? If I say that my soul delights in something, it's about something that's about the core of my being. It's a deep delight stemming from who I most am and most want. God's soul delights in his servant. He's deeply, wonderfully pleased with and satisfied in him. Do notice here something about God's pleasure in his servant. He states it first before he says anything else. Before he ever explains what the servant will do, he explains his great delight in him. It's really the same in the baptism story. Here, Jesus is just about to start his public ministry, but he really hasn't done any of the things that we know him for yet. Nothing flashy, no miracles, no big teachings at this point. But before he does anything, God already delights in him. He's already well pleased with him. This is about how much he truly loves him, not for what he will do, just simply for who he is. So the Lord is deeply connected relationally with his servant, with Jesus is what God wants the people to see. But he's also deeply connected in terms of work. He's put his spirit upon him. That's about the servant being set apart and empowered for the work to come, for the work that God has for him, which we do see in this passage. But before those details, look at verse 5 and 6 briefly with me. We see there very clearly that the servant is not doing this work alone um, or under his own plans. It's the great Lord who created all things is working in and through him. God says to the servant, um, after describing himself as the creator, he says, I have called you. I will take you by the hand. I will give you. So God upholds and supports the servant. He gives him his spirit for the work. And then it's God who calls and gives the servant God at work through him. The work of the servant, the work of Jesus, is the very work of God. It's what God wants, what God wills. This is his work being done. So as God is introducing Jesus to the people, he's already telling them, you need to pay attention. Notice what he does. It's what I want. This is from me. The work of Jesus isn't going to be something strange or new. It's not starting a new story or tossing out the old. The life and work of Jesus is the same work that God has always been about. 
It's a challenge for those who will watch and hear Jesus. If they're struggling with what Jesus does, it is not Jesus who's wrong. It's their understanding of God. It's a challenge for us, too. The creator God at work throughout the Old Testament is the God at work in Jesus. We can't set Jesus over and against what came before. We might struggle sometimes to even like some of the harder parts of the Old Testament or to really understand what God is doing with his people. But we can't turn aside from it all. We can only hold on to Jesus and then consider these stories along with him. He's the same God pursuing that same work. So God and his servant are intimately connected, relationally and vocationally. Um, God is at work in all that the servant is doing here. So the people are looking at Jesus then, as Isaiah 42 might be rumbling in their minds, what is the work they're expecting from him? The first part of his work uh, emphasized very strongly here in Isaiah 42 is that he will bring forth justice. It says that three times in three verses, which is like as much emphasis as you can possibly do in a lot of ways. So the servant will be one who brings justice. Two quick things as you think about that. Um, at the time of Isaiah and his prophecy, it's kings who are responsible for justice in their land. So this is a way of saying that the servant will be a lot more than just a humble servant. But also notice, if he's going to establish justice upon the whole earth, if even the distant coastlands, far off nations, wait in anticipation for his laws, then the servant's king of the whole world. And second, definitely notice, the servant isn't like vainly attempting to bring justice. He's not just making nice decrees, hoping people will follow along. He says he will establish justice. It will happen at his hand. But what then is meant by justice? I think our minds tend to think pretty quickly of, of our courts and judges system. If someone has done something wrong, we think, will they be brought to justice there? But the Hebrew word for justice is bigger than that. It's more than what the courts do. It's saying a lot more than just impartiality and, and justice before that judge. The concept of justice here is actually a vision for all of life, that everything should be just around us, that every concern should be rightly addressed. It's a vision for the whole world when everything is made right and everything is good. It's not something small or partial. It's complete, full justice, the full rightness of all things according to the design of God. And we see here not only that the servant will establish this great justice, but he will do it in a way that agrees with that justice. The people then, we now, know of rulers who will claim to uphold justice, but they will not pursue those ends justly. By this point, the Jewish people um, have been conquered and reconquered, and all their rulers in some way would say, we're pursuing our justice, we're pursuing things right. Um, of course, they know otherwise, and they've been on the other end of that. But the servant, he won't conquer or rule like those rulers. He will bring justice, he will do so justly. That's why it says he won't break a bruised reed or he won't quench a faintly burning wick. That means blow out a weak candle. This isn't actually about reeds or candles, though. This is about people. Those who are most hurting, those who are barely holding on, the servant will not just roll right over them, but will faithfully care for them, will faithfully bring them along into the justice that he brings. We're then actually told uh, in verse 4 that the servant will not grow dim or be discouraged. Um, and when it actually says discouraged, it can also mean he will not be bruised, which I think is a little bit better here, um, because then we see um, parallel language between the two. He's here for those who are bruised and weak, but he won't be bruised or get weak. The idea is, is that the servant is compassionate and caring, but he's also strong. He will not crush those who are hurting, and he has the strength to stand for them, to hold them and keep them safe. 
So what does this actually look like? Um, I think about the time when in the Gospel of John chapter 4, Jesus decides that he had to travel through Samaria. No one at the time had to go through Samaria, everyone around, but, but not Jesus. He had somewhere to be, and it turns out that that was um, in a well near a town called Sychar at around noon one day. And he was there alone as the disciples were away buying food when a woman came. She was already a social outcast, he knew. Um, she had already had five husbands and was now with another man. This means she'd already known so much pain, sorrow, rejection, insecurity. It had been a very long time since anything in her life had felt right. But Jesus did not condemn her or shame her. He talked with her, answering her questions and even her deflections until he very finely, uniquely revealed himself to her. Um, he, he said, I am the Messiah that you are waiting for. And she was transformed by her time with him. She'd been rushed into the town to call all the people to go out and meet with Jesus. She said that he had told her everything she'd ever done, but she wasn't crushed by him. She was healed by him. We continue in this passage then to see also that the work the servant will do is explained further as God says to the servant that I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. As a light for the nations, Jesus not only can heal physical blindness, but the actual emphasis here is on spiritual blindness and spiritual imprisonment. Jesus comes to us in our spiritual prisons and our sins, and he pulls us out. He opens our eyes so we can finally see and know the love and grace of God, and then turn to that life that he so freely offers us in Jesus. It's a little bit harder to understand, I think, though, what God means when he says he'll give the servant as a covenant for the people. A covenant, overly simply, is meant as a, a formal, unbreakable promise. Um, when we hear that language, we need to think about all the promises and covenants that God made throughout the Old Testament with Abraham, Israel, David. Those covenants pointed to God's faithfulness, his love, his grace, his plan to renew and restore all things. So to give the servant as a covenant seems like either the servant is being given to complete those covenants, which Jesus, of course, did, in fact, do. In his life, death, and resurrection, he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Or it means that he's being given as another promise of the coming restoration. Jesus is that promise too, but he's not just a promise that's looking ahead because he already started the restoration and renewal of all things. But there's promise too because Jesus is going to return to finish that work and make all things new and right. So this servant is given as a covenant. He's the fulfillment of God's promises, the beginning and source of restoration. This is this servant, intimately related to God in relationship and work. He will establish justice, bring light, fulfill all of God's promises. And at his baptism, as he still stands there in the water, God tells all the people, the servant is before you. He's introducing them to Jesus. I wonder as they looked upon him and pondered any of these things, even as they just wondered about God speaking from heaven, I wonder how many were confused that Jesus was there wet from his baptism. We know John the Baptist was. In the Gospel of Matthew, he actually tries to stop Jesus from being baptized because the baptism that John was offering was a baptism all about repentance, of preparation for the coming king, Messiah, servant. Surely the servant didn't need the baptism. Jesus had no need to repent. He didn't need to turn to God and be prepared for the Messiah. He was Messiah, but he was still baptized. I think it fits really well, actually, with this introduction in Isaiah 42. He wouldn't cry aloud or lift up his voice in the street. He wouldn't be like the conquering rulers that people knew. 
He would not break those he hurt. He would come right down to us and enter our lives. Jesus would be with us and be like us. And the amazing thing that we get to remember on our baptism days like today is that in our baptisms, we are made like Christ. Paul says in Romans that in our baptisms, we are united to Christ's death and his life. He says in Galatians that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In baptism, God is at work to bring us into union with Christ, to make us his children. And that means that these passages before us aren't only introducing us to Jesus. They're actually showing us something of the life that we have with Jesus, united to Jesus. They give us an idea of what our lives should look like. Jesus will establish justice while not crushing those in need. Since Jesus is the king, since he reigns in such a way, we can devote ourselves to that coming world, a world where everything is right, good, and just. And we can be people known for fairness, rightness, compassion, generosity, a people who stand up for those who can't stand for themselves. Jesus is the light of the world, and we are united with him. So as we go out, his light is with us. We bring him into the darkness and hurt that we find. We get to show and tell about the freedom that he gives. I especially want us to think about how after we are united with Christ in our baptism and made children of God, God's delight over Jesus, his love for him before he does anything, that is God's love and delight in us too. When God sees you, he thinks, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, with you I am well pleased. We don't earn that love, we don't work for it. God loves us like that in Jesus before we do anything. Now, of course, this is the place that we start doing things from, from this place of love and approval, because we can only ever respond to it by giving up our whole selves. But no matter our failures, no matter our successes, we will never leave the love and delight that God has for us through Jesus. So let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you came, that you are our servant and king and Messiah, and God, that you love us um, through him so much. Um, help us to hold fast to your love and delight to remember it's not us we're not doing something but that you love us um, so much anyway um, turn our hearts to you amen